I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 138 of the Food About Town podcast, Greg Hart from Stonecrop Farm came over to the studio. We talked about his organic farm in Henrietta. This is a bit of a follow-up from an episode that I recorded with Evan Dawson uh, on WXXI, where we talked about uh, ethical treatment of animals. And it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, Andrea was there from the Red Fern, and Greg was on, as well as uh, Chris Hartman from Headwater Food Hub. So we talked all about ethical treatment of animals, new rules in California. We touch on that in here a bit, but we also talk about Greg's experience and uh, raising pigs in a way that is uh, ethical and balanced. So really interesting conversation. Um, also would recommend that you check out CurateMeals.com, my restaurant delivery and uh, service where you can pick up meals from me. We have events coming up on December the 1st and the 15th, and then we take a little break until mid-January. Uh, otherwise, uh, got a lot of great stuff coming up, uh, a lot of stuff still in the background. So stay tuned for some small episodes and some news about the Food About Town podcast, as well as some uh, some hot takes, hot takes on the Rochester restaurant scene. So uh, enjoy this episode with Greg Hart from Stone Crop Farm, and be good to yourself and everyone around you. Enjoy this episode, and we'll be back soon with more from the Food About Town podcast. And we're back with another episode of the Food About Town podcast. It's a beautiful evening in Rochester. As far as I'm concerned, this is perfect weather. It's 70 degrees, just starting to go into, what do we call this, duskish time frame? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, duskish. Um, beautiful evening, and I'm joined by a guest. Guest, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, I am Greg Hart. I'm the owner and operator of Stonecrop Farm. We're a certified organic livestock farm in Henrietta. So in Henrietta specifically, it's still in Henrietta Town. So we are, so we are located on Rush Henrietta Town Line Road. Okay, and we are on the Henrietta side of, of that road. So right are, on the we border, are literally on the border with Rush. Um, we're in that funny situation where our zip code says we're in Rush, but we're actually in Henrietta. Yeah, and that's kind of like that's kind of where I'm at. Like I'm in Irondequoit by like two blocks. But I'm so much closer to the city than I am to the heart of Arondacoit. Like, I never go to, like, Arondacoit Town Hall or I-Square or all the stuff that's in, like, the heart that people would consider Arondacoit. Mm -hmm. I'm never there. I'm vastly more often in the city than I'm there. Yeah, we... Uh, well, one thing I will say is that we are in a really lucky position in that we are... Um, on the edge of being rural, but we are so close to Henrietta that we have easy access to hardware stores and basically everything else that we need for the farm. It's kind of nice, right? Yeah. I, I grew up bordering, I grew up bordering the country in a small town, Boston, New York, near, uh, near Hamburg. So we drove 15 minutes or took the bus 15 minutes to high school, but I was much closer to cows than I was to the city. And we were a little more isolated than where you are because that's like your, uh, your time to Henrietta is like tiny then. Oh yeah. We're maybe seven minutes from Wegmans and oh, that's 10 nice. minutes from Home Depot. It's like, kind of a nice yeah. balance, isn't it? It is. I mean, in our piece of property in particular, it feels even more isolated because we have woods on three sides um, oh, nice. from our neighbors. Um, and then we have the Rush Reservoir on our, th on our, th on our Southern side. Mm. And, so we have no neighbor over there too, which Ooh, is great. That's not bad. Yeah. That's real country living, isn't it? Feels It feels more country than it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's do a quick backdrop because um, we got introduced on an episode of Connections. Yes. We were doing an episode. There was an episode of Connections. This was about a little more than a month ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And the episode that we were on together was around... Um, changing regulations in animal storage. Just animal storage is the wrong phrase for that. But uh, you know, that's the. It's not that's wrong kind, that's in the kind context. of a Freudian slip there, actually. Yeah, right. Because it, I mean, the way. Yes, like you. Yeah, well, to finish what you were saying. Um, yeah, we were talking about the the new regulations in California that are coming into effect, um, surrounding how um, egg producing chickens and. Um, pig breeding stock are treated and housed. Um, and the, yeah, I think your, your slip of, of storage is, is quite apt since the, the commercial 
pork industry really does treat those animals like, uh, like machines or commodities. They're really not treated like the animals that they are. Yeah. And I think that was, that was a very interesting conversation because, uh, the guests that were on, um, and by the way, if, if it's still up, it's worth listening to. It was a, it was a very interesting, uh, very interesting episode. Um, it was myself, um, you and, um, Andrea Peros from Red Fern and uh, Chris Hartman from uh, Headwater Food Hub. So this was a pretty diverse panel of um, of angles on this. You know, Chris being, you know, a, a middle person for a lot of local food distribution in our area. I'm a huge fan of what Headwater is doing uh, and their uh, custom boxes that you can buy. Yeah, it's really amazing. I like what Andrew is doing over at Red Fern. Uh, with the whole vegan approach and everything else. And that's kind of the angle I'm at right now as well for the last, geez, going on about uh, 18 months or so, full vegan, um, minus the bites I'm having tonight. Um, and then you who are raising, um, raising is it mostly pigs or all pigs? Uh, it's almost entirely pigs. We do have uh, an egg-laying flock okay. of chickens, and then we also raise Thanksgiving turkeys. Oh, nice. Yep. So you're doing a little bit of a little bit of poultry, a little bit of birds, and mostly pigs mm-hmm. on an organic basis. Um, can you describe a little bit about your farm and how you approach? We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the uh, discussion we had before, but can you describe a bit more about how you approach the welfare of animals on your farm? So we think about the, the animal welfare uh, on our farm in, in a way to, to really allow the animals to exhibit the behaviors that they want to exhibit. Um, for the chickens, we make sure that they have um, plenty of pasture to forage in, to hunt for bugs um, and grit to, to eat because they need that to help digest the food that they eat. Um, and then we also make sure they have roosting bars so that at night they can actually roost up high. That's kind of their natural defense mechanism. Um, so they have a really strong roosting instinct for the pigs. Um, it's really about giving them lots of space, um, and lots of green pasture because even though they are omnivores, they, they're not ruminants. So they don't only eat grass. Um, they love eating grass they love eating clover. They love eating goldenrod roots. Um, well, they love exploring too, right? I mean, they're, absolutely. they're exceptionally clever animals. And I think it's one of those, it's one of those things with the disconnection from the food supply that uh, I'm sure you see up close and personal all the time. They're exceptionally clever animals. They're the equal to, you know, pets that we have in the house. They're very clever and smart animals. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Um, and we, yeah, we really try to make sure that they're able to I'd say to live their piggiest lives. Absolutely. Um, because they deserve it. And I think if we're, if we're going to eat an animal, it deserves to be treated incredibly well during its lifetime. Yeah. I think it comes down to a, um, kind of a respect thing. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, we're, we're making that choice and that's, you know, if we're going to raise animals for food, at least giving them the, the dignity of having lived a halfway decent life while they're doing it. It's kind of a, a lot of the way the, the Europeans uh, treat them with a kind of reverence for, hey, we're, we're making this pig taste as delicious as possible by letting them live their best life in the time that they have. Absolutely. Which is kind of, it seems like that's kind of the direction you're going. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're making sure that they have um, more than enough space for them to, to stay clean and healthy to forage um, as much as they want. We, we're making sure that the grain that we do give them is really high quality um, so that they're not getting garbage or eating, yeah, just eating junk. Yeah. Um, and then making sure that they have clean water and a place to stay cool and a place to stay warm depending on the season um, and really just getting to be pigs. Yeah, that's really what it's about is letting letting them exhibit the behaviors that they really want to and that they would normally if they were not on a farm. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a step back to that discussion we had on the show because it was, you know, you're talking about what is closer to what I would consider an ideal raising condition for animals that are being uh, used in, you know, used for food. Um, On the show, we were talking a lot about the, you know, the factory farms Mm -hmm. and the, 
what's what I would consider almost almost diametrically opposed to the direction you go, which is, you know, animals that have no room to turn around. They are living in cages nearly 100% of their lives. And it was it was a really interesting really interesting conversation because I knew a lot about it before, but doing more research during that time kind of you know, almost pushed me farther in the direction I was going with not eating animals at all. Um, but at the same time, I do respect the farmers that try to do things as best as possible. And, uh, you know, um, places in town that do that, and I believe I mentioned on the show, is uh, like McCann's that sources, you know, all local whole animals mm-hmm. and processes them whole and uses as much as possible and does as little waste as possible. All that stuff does matter to me. I think it's still important to do that as best we can. And I think that's a really good point. I and mean, I think the using the whole animal um, in addition to showing them respect while they're living is really important to showing them respect after um, they've been slaughtered. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important. Um, I mean, for us, we, we try to educate our customers on using the oddments like the feet and the bones and the, the organ meats to be completely honest, pig's feet are one of the most used things in our house. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, I'm going to pivot because this is one of my, I was certainly a, a large meat eater for many years of my life. Um, and that's actually something I was very passionate about was making sure people used all the different parts of an animal. So let's go through that list a little bit more because <laughs> I am, this is super up my alley. So let's talk about pig's feet for a second. Sure. A lot of people's exposure to pig's feet is around the uh, neon red colored pickles pig's feet they'd see on a on a shelf in a store that they very rarely go to or in a bar you really don't want to be eating food from which yeah. is not really a fair it's not really a fair portrayal of what an amazing ingredient it is when it comes to making stocks when it comes to seasoning food this is another example of a thing you can use to season your food really well without using an exorbitant amount of meat also. Absolutely. I mean, our, our most frequent use for them is throwing them in a pot of beans. Absolutely. And you get all that collagen and connective tissue just melting down into the beans and it's, it's heaven. Well, it kind of changes, right. You're cha- it changes the whole texture because beans make a great, you know, uh, a bean liquor is what it's often referred to as, but with the addition of the the collagen and whatever gelatin's in there, you know, from the both the skin and the bones, I mean, you're talking about almost a complete ingredient when it comes to seasoning a pot of uh, a pot of beans, which otherwise is, you know, you're just using that as flavor in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. We uh, a couple months ago we didn't have any trotters in our house for some reason which is a rarity. And we just decided to make beans anyways and realized we were never going to do that again. <laughs> now, when you're using them, do you use them uh, fresh or do you use them fro- uh, smoked? Um, we typically use them fresh. Okay. Yeah. We have done smoked sometimes, um, but we, I don't know. We just, just like them fresh. I think. No, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Cause I know, you know, in a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Southern foods, uh, you know, soul food, they use, you know, smoked, you know, smoked, uh, smoked, uh, pig's feet and things like that, because you can generate those huge flavors for collard greens and other dishes Absolutely. in that realm. But I mean, it's a great ingredient in of itself. And also when you're talking about classic preparations, anything from, you know, cassoulet to, you know, all sorts of things, all these things were always used from feet to, you know, any other part you can think of. It's, it's not, it's not food for rich people. This is food for people that need to use the parts of the animal that they have available to them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's where, yeah, eating low on the hog. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean it can't be delicious though. And oftentimes it's even more delicious. Yeah. To be uh, honestly, I will take pig's feet over pork chops most days of the week. Almost always, to be honest. And not even just in like a recipe of seasoning. We, uh, one of our favorite recipes also is to actually uh, braise and then, and then roast pig's feet. No, it makes complete sense. I mean, spicy, spicy and sweet sauce on them and they're delectable. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, like when you're talking about, you know, like cows, as far as I'm concerned, one of the very worst cuts of meat on a, on a pig is a tenderloin. I mean, on a cow is a tenderloin. I don't like it. 
I never liked it. It doesn't taste good. It's not a muscle that really gets used. No, it's boring. Yeah. And that's why the shoulder, like for a pig, the shoulder and the hams are, are really the most flavorful, like large muscles. Um, Cause those are the ones that get used all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about some other off cuts that you do try to educate your customers on that they might not be as familiar with. Um, I mean, we're a big fan of pork tongue. Mm, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's gained, I think pork and beef tongue have gained a lot of popularity um, more recently, but we, we just put them in a slow cooker and then shred them and you got pork tongue tacos right there. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's probably the prevalence of people's comfortability with cuisines from other countries that has mm-hmm. done it. I don't think there's been a huge push here in America to use the tongue specifically. Like there's not like new American dishes like, oh, you know what we're serving today? We're just serving tongue. And I think it's also even more than that, the the preference to have a disconnect with the animal in a lot of cases. I mean, when you look at bacon or you look at pork chops, like you don't see a pig when you look at those. But if you have a no. like a crock pot full of tongues or a, a pig's foot in your, your pot of beans, like you're going to know like that came from an animal. Absolutely. Yeah, there's yeah. no way around it. I, I, I recall a meal that we had a while back at a Szechuan restaurant. And I'm a huge fan of Szechuan Chinese food. And one of the classic dishes is uh, dry fried chicken. So this is, you know, cooked in a wok and it's crispy and spicy and really dynamically flavored. And the restaurant had um, uh, dry fried chicken hearts as a dish. And one, it was great because, you know, a lot of times the chicken hearts are just discarded or maybe ground into something else. They are so good. So delicious. But I also had a pile of chicken hearts in front of me. (laughs) I'm like, wow, that's a lot of chickens that were on this plate all at the same time. And to be fair, a lot of those things are not used and are thrown away. It's better to have used them than having wasted them. But at the same time, it does force you to reflect on, yeah, there's only one heart and a chicken. <laughs> so that's a lot of chickens that were involved in the dinner I had today. Absolutely. I mean, and you can say the same thing when you look at those like baskets of chicken wings at bars. Absolutely. Yeah. There's only so many wings on a chicken. Yeah. Turns out it's two. <laughs> well, four pieces when we're talking about chicken wings in two. America, but um, so tongues, yes, absolutely you know, usually fairly full flavored requires a little bit of uh, time mm-hmm. to get them nice and tender, but both with pig and beef tongue, a lot of reward at the end when you're talking about flavor and texture too. Absolutely. Because the texture is amazing mm-hmm. on both of those things. Yeah. I mean, our, our favorite thing is, like I said, slow cooking and shredding, and then we'll usually put it into a skillet just briefly and kind of crisp it up a tiny bit at the end. And it's just, yeah, it's amazing because it's, it's really like, it's a, it's a muscle meat. Um, so it's not, it's not like using an organ like liver where you really do have a a texture that can be off putting to a lot of people. Yeah. Texture. And it's, it like, it has a very specific intensity. Mm -hmm. If people get past the fact that it is a tongue, the flavor profile is not challenging at all. It's not like you're eating kidneys. Yes. Kidneys take a little bit of work to get through. Liver takes a little bit of work to get through. Tongue really doesn't once you're past the fact that it's tongue. Yeah. And so, and uh, I will say in, in, in respect to that, the funny thing for us is my wife, um, who is now a very enthusiastic um, enjoyer of, of the meat that we grow. Uh, she was a vegetarian since she was probably about 10 years old. Yeah. So when we started raising livestock, she, she, um, yeah, she got on board with with the idea of eating meat once she was able to see how the animals were being raised, because a large part of her issue with with eating meat early on was the treatment of the animals. Um, so we we really only eat the meat that we raise ourselves. But when we started getting into kind of the stranger, I mean, quote unquote stranger um, parts of the animal, like the tongue and the trotters, she was very hesitant at first and definitely put off by them. Um, until you kind of get past that phase where you don't have a crock pot full of tongues, you have a, a bowl full of shredded meat. Mm-hmm. And then she was on board entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it takes, it takes a little bit of convincing for some people, 
Um, again, I, I recall having it for the first time in a taco, you know, a, a beef tongue taco. Langua now was my was my favorite taco meat for a very long time because it's, you know, texturally great, flavorful great. And you, you feel like you're doing your part to eat, you know, eat parts that likely would have been ground up or turned into something else. So tongues, absolutely. Let's go one more, and then I want to go into a little bit of history. So one more cut that you've been trying to convince people, but the one that you're struggling to convince people about right now. I think the the one that, I mean, right now, because it's summertime, is less popular. And I think because people aren't really familiar with using pork for it is the bones. Oh, interesting. Actually, Yeah. we In the wintertime, we usually have a pretty loyal following of, of people who make pork bone broth. But a lot of people, including myself before we started raising pigs, like don't really think about pork broth, um, even though it's used in other countries as a really amazing base for a lot of dishes. It's a staple. It's not even just like just a base. It's, it is a staple. I mean, especially when we're talking about, you know, Chinese, Japanese um, specifically and Korean as well. Um, you know, how many amazing, you know, pork broth ramens are completely based on bones. I mean, that's what got me into ramen was tonkatsu, which is, um, you know, pork bone broth with fat. And it's like thick and rich and was just unctuous and phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but at the same time, growing up eating mostly Western food, like we ate beef broth and we had chicken broth and that was pretty much it. And I think a lot of people are still in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, or at, yeah. least, or at least not realizing like, oh yeah, ramen is pork broth in a lot of cases. Oh yeah. Especially yeah. a lot of the real stuff too, because it's, it's, we are very chicken and beef centric. Mm-hmm. Although we dabble in pork with bacon, that's really, it's bacon and pork chops that people really think about when it comes to pork. We eat very little ground pork here in America. Um, and other than barbecue with ribs and you know, ribs and then bacon and stuff. That's, that's what people consider about the pig. And it's not, it's not nearly as dynamic, especially when it comes to utilization of offcuts, like, you know, head meat and everything else. I mean, when I was at a, if I was at a pig roast, I go directly to the head. I don't touch anything else. I go right there. That's always the first place I would go. Yeah. Oh yeah. The cheek meat is, oh yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Cheek meat and everything around there. You're, that's where you always grab is, you know, it's tons of flavor, you know, gobs of fat. And when it comes to like cured stuff, when we were in Italy, like that's, you know, you're getting cured guanciale. Mm. How, how do you beat that? It, but it also had, it also had a distinct character to it because it had a little bit of, a little bit of dank. It's got a little bit of funk with the real fermentation and everything else. Um <laughs> <sighs> Man, this is yeah. This is this is a vegan rhapsodizing about pork meats. Sorry to bring you back there. No, God, maybe, my, it's, maybe it's a good thing though. No, my 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 diet when we were in Italy was almost entirely baked goods and cured pork products. That was almost my entire diet. I mean, that's a good way to go in Italy. <laughs> it was amazing. It was it was dairy and bread and cured pork products. It was like my entire diet. Yeah, what else do you need there? I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's Italy. It was amazing. <laughs> it was so good. Um, before we go on to our break, uh, I want to learn a little bit about little bit more about your history when you opened the farm and what were you doing before that? So when, when did you okay. actually open the farm? So we, so we started at our land in Henrietta in 2016. Um, so a relatively young farm. Um, before that, we had been over um, raising turkeys in Victor um, at Mud Creek Farm. Okay. Um, which is where I'd been working at the time. And backtracking even before that, um, I was in grad school in California um, getting a PhD in chemistry. Obviously. Because that's the saying. usual farmer path. Yeah, it makes complete sense to me. You're talking about, you know, organic chemistry and all these other things. And you're like, yeah, you know what? I think I've had about enough of, uh, of, uh, of elements and everything else just ready to be done with that. So what, what was your, what was your direction in academia at that point? 
Um, so in, in undergrad, I'd studied, um, chemistry and kind of the usual path. Like when you get a, an undergrad degree in chemistry is end up in grad school. You almost kind of have to, it's like getting a philosophy or a psychology degree. You kind of have to go on to get at least a master's degree before you're kind of viable in industry. Yeah. And, and the good thing I would say for, for chemistry enthusiasts. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's call it that. Nerds. Yeah, I'm I'm very Bingo. I'm very much on board with this. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> science nerd. I'm an engineer by I was a mechanical engineering degree and I've worked in technical industry my whole career, so I'm very I love uh technical nerdery. The yeah. I still yeah, I still enjoy it. <laughs> I, yeah, a good spreadsheet really excites me excites oh, me sometimes. It's so. so good. Oh, when you get the when yeah. you get everything just I I use I use Excel for way more things than I probably should because I just like making a good spreadsheet with built-in formulas and pi- oh, pivot tables. Very few things make mm-hmm. me more satisfied than a well-made pivot table to oh, analyze you, you, data. It's so good. Oh, you should see some of the spreadsheets I had in grad school. <laughs> the, they, 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 really, uh, they really tested the powers of Excel. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was a feeling of accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in you're in the process you get your bachelor's degree you're going on to grad school where where were you going at that point in your in your head where where were you mentally going in the field so at that point i was going into um, atmospheric chemistry okay so like looking at air quality and and things about yeah basically air quality and and um potentially climate science um it was kind of in, in the nature, kind of in the, you know, in science, everybody was very well aware, but before there was, I would call widespread adoption and knowledge about the field. It was kind of a perfect time for that. This was early 2010s. Yeah. So it was, um, 2009. 2009. Yeah. I mean, that makes yeah, sense. That's, that sounds like the right year. And that that's, that's when it was, it was starting to become more prevalently discussed, but you know, before things started to really change, mm-hmm. not that things have really changed that far policy-wise, but... Um, but in public awareness, though. Yeah, public awareness really started to skyrocket at that point. Absolutely. So you're going in that direction. So I'm going in that direction, and then I end up working on a farm for a summer between college and grad school. Um, and I had this other, this other thing that I had done that involved... Um, international research that was kind of a, a bridge between college and grad school. Um, but working on that farm for the summer just exposed me to that. Yeah, that work, um, both growing vegetables and working with livestock and really just fell in love with it. Um, but as, as many things in life, like the train keeps on rolling and finished up that summer and, and went on to grad school. Um, but couldn't quite let that idea go. And once I finished up in grad school, decided like, all right, I'm, I'm done with, I'm done with a formal career in chemistry and, and now it's time to learn how to farm. So did you, you ended up getting your master's degree in chemistry? Um, ended up getting master's in, well, actually, did I get a master's? <laughs> I got a PhD. I don't remember if they gave me a master's. Oh, you a actually, lot. you actually end up getting your PhD. I didn't know I if did. you dropped out partway through. No, I, I almost did. Yeah. Um, I came very close at one point um, and then decided that I needed to finish to make sure that that I wasn't quitting or wanting to farm because I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to hack it. So what was the, uh, what was the, this is, this is the topic we're going to get before we go to break and talk more about things. What was the dissertation on? So the dissertation was on um, detecting... Uh, volatile organic compounds. So thinking like methane or ethane, um, like hydrocarbons and a number of different other compounds that were coming from the oil fields and um, offshore natural gas seeps in Southern California. It's a fascinating topic, isn't it? It was really interesting. Um, And there really hadn't been very much done on it at that point. Which is really interesting because I've listened and read to a lot of stuff recently about detection of what would be considered, you could consider them leaks or you consider them just like 
you know, in all of the transportation of natural gas and all these other things, and also refrigerants and the like, the extent of the amount of those going into the environment coming from waste and leaks, not just from consumption, is a staggeringly large percentage. I've actually been... Absolutely. I've listened to a lot of stuff recently about this on economics podcasts and uh, read a few articles about it. It's like a really big percentage, like 20% or more of the stuff that goes in the atmosphere is from leaks because people have no idea it's happening. And it's, I mean, and you think about like the oil fields in California, natural gas in California, like that's been around for a long time. It's, it's old infrastructure. Yeah. Um, And there's right. There's no, there was no detection for almost the entire time of it. And the amount that people just had no idea was being wasted and also like leaking into the environment. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And there's, and I mean, at the time there was very little in the way of funding for, for researching that. Um, like it was, I mean, fortunately I had a, I had a, a hands off um, advisor who basically just said, you know, like if this is something that you're interested in, like take the equipment you need and, and go do it. Um, and I was just given kind of free reign to, to take air. Basically we took, um, vacuum pumped air canisters into the field, filled them with ambient air and brought them back and analyzed them and just drove around public roads on the oil fields and, and did that. And then just by chance was able to do um, an airborne study in a NASA funded plane um, over the oil fields that really kind of gave the full picture. I'll see. Now I just want to talk about this for half an hour because this is, (laughs) this is so up my alley. It's, it's such a fascinating field because, between one, just seeing if it's an issue, because I'm sure it obviously was. I mean, that's that's the result of the study is it's not good. <laughs> and then I mean, and then you throw on on top of I mean, with methane the the global warming potential, um, throw into that all the other hydrocarbons that affect local air quality too, because the southern um, the Central Valley in California was, yeah, it's a an air quality disaster zone. Absolutely. I mean, even before the fires. Oh, I that, say. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's a whole other story. Turns out that global warming's a problem. Who knew? A little bit. <laughs> On that note, uh, we're going to take a brief break, and we'll talk more about nerdery and also pig stuff. And we'll be right back. Another reminder to go to curatemeals.com to order for our events coming up on December 1st, December 15th, or January 12th. We've got a vegan meal coming up, I believe, on December 15th. We've got some charity events coming up, and we've been really enjoying working with many different restaurants all over Rochester. We've done over 20 events so far and got great reception, so if you haven't checked it out yet... Uh, Go to curatemeals.com, order for pickup or for delivery. Pick up at the historic German house where you can buy beer or cider pairings. We've been enjoying pairing meals uh, with different products from all over New York State and around the world. So if you haven't, go to curatemeals.com and order. If you have any questions, reach out to me at stromi at curatemeals.com. And we're back after a brief break full of philosophizing and me rambling about all sorts of different things. And uh, just a reminder, um, where can people find Storm Stone Crop Farm and how can they buy from you? So we sell from our farm directly um, every Thursday from 430 to 6 and Sundays from 9 to 12. Okay. Um, and our website is the, the best place to find information about us. That's uh, stonecropfarmny.com. Beautiful. Um, and we'll show up on Google if you just search us there. Very nice. Uh, have you dabbled around with, uh, you know, CSAs and subscription things? Or are you still on just a show up and buy what you want? Um, so we do have a subscription for our eggs. Um, we've been doing that for a few years now. Um, so we have a great loyal following of people who get eggs from us every week. Um, and then we do sell, um, we call it a pig share. It's a half pig, um, which is, I mean, it's kind of, you pick it up at one time. So it's not really a CSA, but that's, that's the other thing we do besides just the the simple direct retail cuts to show up and, and buy. It's kind of a really nice way to explore if you want to understand what comes from half an animal. Absolutely. And also understand, um, 
kind of the point that we were making before about using the whole animal, like what the actual proportions of an animal are. Like if you're eating only bacon, there's a whole lot of stuff other, a whole lot of other stuff in that animal to, to explore. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus, I mean, it, it, it does force you to learn about how to cook each thing a little bit differently because everything mm-hmm. deserves that kind of attention to detail to get to what is best. How do you best use this? Yeah. I think, I think that the buying a half pig is, is truly the best for someone who's excited about cooking. And it's not, it's not a crazy amount. Like you can, it'll, it'll fill up your regular freezer pretty good. Yes. Um, but if you have, if you already have a, you know, even a small chest freezer, you can handle a half pig, not that difficultly. Oh yeah. I mean, it only takes up somewhere between two and three cubic feet. So yeah, the smallest chest freezer would be enough. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly a good way to explore and definitely makes you, makes you think about how you cook and makes you think about a lot of different things. Um, Let's finish up our discussion. So we were at, you'd gotten your PhD in chemistry on a fascinating topic. I'm still thinking about it. I need to think about this more. Um, and then you get your PhD and where is your head at? How do you make that transition from, I just got in a hard science, I got a PhD, which means you can be in academia, you can go on to industry, at the How time, you, at the time, I was expecting to go into a federal government position. Yeah, it makes complete um, sense. Either with EPA or NASA or NOAA, one of one of those big three. But uh, yeah, at the time, I mean, by the time I finished grad school, I knew that I was gonna farm. Like that was that was the path that was that was ahead of me. Um, at one point, I had thought about okay, maybe I'll I'll work in in one of those other jobs for like ten years, fifteen years, and save up a bunch of money and then farm. But it just kind of felt like I should just jump into it and not wait. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of intrigued. So I want to I want to dive into the mindset a little bit more at that time, because you know I I work on that balance all the time. Is you know I I have a you know I have a I have a good day job that I like and I enjoy, and then all the other stuff is facilitated by that, and I get to do a lot of different things because I have a you know a comfortable nice job that I enjoy doing. It's challenging and. It's been very good to me. Where, where at that time, you know, you're, you're about to go into, you know, a real career, right? You know, the very sustainable, the great time to be going into that career. What was the thing in your head that grabbed you in a way where you couldn't just, you know, have a, have a nice big plot of land and, you know, have, you know, have a vegetable garden and maybe raise some chickens, kind of do it the hobby style, what was the thing that was in your head that you couldn't get out where you had to go into it full time? So the, I have this image and it's a memory that I go back to a lot. Um, and it's from that first summer working on this farm outside Albany. Um, I remember that we were trellising peas that day and tedious work, tedious work, but, and, and, and painful work if it's like your <laughs> second week farming and you're using gloves that you really shouldn't be and then your hands are covered in blisters. Uh-huh, pretty great. Um, I definitely had the wrong gloves to farm with to start out with. Uh, but, yeah, I remember being, it was like 4.30, you get that yellow early summer sunlight coming down and just looking out over this field of vegetables and just thinking to myself, wow, like we are really doing something. Like there's a real tangible result. We're feeding people, we're growing food and it just felt amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really a kind of an emotional, it was more emotional than rational in that yeah. moment. Yeah. One, one of those resonant things that kind of, yeah, you're right. Kind of sticks with you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Cause I, I, I grew up on a family business, you know, uh, we had a greenhouse and Christmas trees and everything else. And I, I take a lot from that time in my life, you know, working with my hands and, you know, seeing the people show up and buy their things and be happy and do all that stuff. I, I take a lot from that. But having gone through it when I was younger, I was much more prepped to enjoy some of those things on the side versus going into it full time. Mm-hmm. 
But those moments are hard to get out of your head too. Absolutely. I mean, and, and from my case, like I, I did not grow up in a farming family. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a first generation farmer and I think while I've missed out on like the experience and the, what would have been decades of knowledge, um, from growing up on a farm, not to mention even more decades of having a parent who had farmed, I didn't come into farming in my own business with the baggage of potential negative emotional experiences of growing up on a farm, um, which I think has really, really been important in shaping um, the way we think about farming and and how to, to do it ourselves. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting because there's, while you're in it when you're younger, I, I had a very different perspective at the time about what it was doing to me versus doing for me. I can look back at it from, you know, fully formed adult mind at what it was, what it was doing at the time. And, you know, I wasn't ready for anything that I really thought I was missing out on to begin with, but it was, I think there were, there's a lot of those moments that you can look back and say, yeah, this, this changed who I am today changes the way I looked at things, changes how I treat people, changes how I look at a lot of different directions. And I can see that when you're sitting on the precipice of a career of bureaucracy and you see that kind of ideal out there, it's kind of, kind of hard not to think about that and gravitate to it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think I was, I was sitting with a decision to work a really hard job that was going to see me sitting inside and doing a lot of computer work um, a lot of the time versus working a really hard job that was going to see me outside <laughs> doing really, I mean, a hard and, and demanding and really challenging work, but, but something that I was going to feel more rewarding or more rewarded with at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's not to put down um, any of my lab mates that stayed in chemistry because I'm, I'm amazed by the work that they're doing. Um, absolutely. And it's absolutely critically important, but, but I just realized that it wasn't the right one for me. And I, I really respect the fact that you just like, Oh yeah, this is, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. So from the time you made the decision, what was the path to actually getting a farm and starting it? And how did you decide on the kind of farm you did? Um, so that's a fun part too. There are lots of twists here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So initially, um, I was expecting to to grow vegetables as our primary thing. Well, actually, I guess realistically, I was initially expecting to do everything, which I think a lot of people think when they're going to get into small farms. Absolutely. Um, we'll have vegetables. We'll do cows and chickens and pigs, and I don't know, we'll throw in some other random thing too. <laughs> um, you know, llamas. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, just in case. Yeah. Who doesn't like a good llama? You know, you never know when a llama is going to come in handy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we thought that we were going to do that initially. Um, and I should say my wife is not a farmer. Well, she's going to be mad when she hears that. <laughs> um, oh, boy. I think I really just stepped in. <laughs> so she, her main career is not farming. Yes. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> She's definitely, I mean, it's hard not to be in it and deep into it when you live there. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, she, I, well, and I will say like during our first four years, she was integral in like everything going on on the farm. Um, and she's still integral with the farm store and like all of our communications with customers. Um, and we've fortunately gotten to a point where I am doing like 90% of the actual farm work itself. Um, which is really good. Yeah. Which, it, it, it's hard yeah. when it's hard when something's at your, you know, that's where you are. Yeah. And it's hard not to get absorbed into it and spend a lot of your time doing it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I will just say she's been amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jenny. <laughs> so I guess back towards, um, starting out with farming, we thought that we were going to go vegetables as our primary thing. Like I, I've always loved the idea of the vegetable CSA. Um, we've been members of a vegetable CSA basically every year since we've been in Rochester. 
Um, and so I started working on vegetable farms, um, mostly because those were the farms that were actually training people. It's actually really hard to find, um, at least in, in, from our experience in New York state, hard to find livestock farms that are doing things in a way that we wanted to do them. Um, and then also hiring regular labor and wanting to, to train the next generation basically. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't people out there doing that in New York state, but kind of like us, like we've designed our systems to be functional with mostly one person. And I think a lot of livestock farms have done that also. Um, so I worked on a couple of vegetable farms. Um, I'd worked with uh, piecework farm, um, which has been no longer in that name. Um, and then worked, uh, at Mud Creek farm, uh, which is where we started raising turkeys. Two of the notable, you know, um, farm, farm nerdery farms in our region. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was great experience working at both places. Um, and then we kind of stumbled upon the property in Henrietta. Uh, it was not listed in any normal online database that I think most people would have found. Um, it was a an interesting situation with someone who had inherited it and lived out of state and wanted to develop it but couldn't, and then the price just kept dropping and we hit it at the right time. Um, it's amazing it was, how the luck can happen sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. And it was a, it was a raw piece of land. It had been farmed, um, by like local field crop farmers, um, so like a lot of corn and soy and oats for a really long time. And then just sat vacant for 15, 20 years. Wow. Um, I think while this guy was trying to develop it and yeah, it was raw land, uh, no house, no utilities, nothing on it. Um, and we still remember it was the the day after we sold all of our turkeys that first year, um, went out and looked at the land, discovered that there was a house next door that was for sale from a different owner at the same time. And, uh, yeah, jumped on it. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild that that's, that's the house you ended up in is right. It's, you know, now you're combined and that's like, and how perfect is that? And the nice thing is it historically is the house that was associated with the land too. Really? Yeah. And it was separated. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we took over the land that winter. It would have been the, yeah, January, 2016. And initially, like I said, we thought we were going to do everything. Um, it's, uh, and, and the, to make it even better, we thought we were going to do it with draft horses. <laughs> Not, not, not to laugh at the, at the ambition, but it's sometimes it's so easy to get enchanted by the romantic ideal of what you're diving yourself into. Oh, 100%. Because <laughs> it's like, oh man, we, we used for a long time, we had a 1950s Ford tractors at home. That's what we used was the 1950s Ford tractors. And it had a very specific has very specific feel to it, right? Using those old tractors and everything else. You know what's a lot better? <laughs> the modern Kubota tractor that my dad bought is a lot better. It's so much easier to use. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something to be said for that. We, uh, <laughs> we <laughs> I, so I'd spent some time working with a, a horsepowered farm down near Cortland. Um, so I'd gotten some training and was really excited about it. And then we realized couple of things one that our land isn't really that great suited for growing mixed vegetables mm -hmm. um it's pretty hilly um at that time the soil wasn't great there was a ton of multi-flora rows so like a lot of brambles and brush um so it wasn't going to be great vegetable ground and then i just realized that i loved working with livestock um and was just so drawn to it and then when a friend of ours had some horses for sale and had that opportunity, we realized that we just don't have the work for horses. And then we bought a tractor a week later. <laughs> um, and the best part though, is that we went 
from January of 2016 to August of 2016 operating a livestock farm without a tractor. Wow. Um, fortunately it was a drought that year. So we didn't get our truck stuck in the fields anywhere. Um, because there was no rain. That would have been an adventure and a half. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would have been bad. And then we, and then the best part is that we were mowing some fence lines with like a, a walk behind oh, like a push mower, which is, oh, yeah, that hurts. That hurts when you even bring it up. It was, <laughs> oh, <that's awful. laughs> we were, we were, uh, we were living the dream. Yeah. That, that is the, what, what a rude awakening into like that kind of farming with that kind of, with, with dealing with that. Yeah, we, we fortunately had some good neighbors and, and we got them to like mow entire fields a couple of times for us, um, like in the spring and summer. But yeah, we were, man, <laughs> one of those things where it's like, wow, that was like the best time of my life, but I never want to do it again. Like you, you think you know what you're doing until you realize that you really have no idea how to do what you think you knew how to do. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of one. Of those, those moments are also super valuable. Absolutely. Like, oh yeah, got it. I really don't know what I'm doing. How about I get some help? Yeah. <laughs> and like, wow, that was that was really a lot harder than it needed to be. Yeah. It, it's one of those things I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about. Is how how do I how do I do better about um not thinking I'm going to do the things that I'm never going to do or never going to do well, even though I know I could do it, not trying to do the things that I'm never actually going to do or do well. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for knowing. Yeah. Knowing your superpower. It's hard because when you're, when you're somebody who is able or at least thinks they're able to do all the things how do you stop? And I'm, I'm sure you're dealing with that all the time. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. And I think it's, it's, it's even worse with farmers. Um, I mean, or at least it is for me. I mean, there's, well, cause there's, it never stops. It never stops. I mean, we, we've gotten a lot better at, at limiting ourselves. Um, but like as a small business owner, we're, we're trying to be, frugal when possible, which obviously means doing as much as we can ourselves. And then I think there's, I think with a lot of farms and probably even more so small farmers, there's like a kind of a badge of honor of working really hard. Absolutely. Um, and it's, and probably with, I mean, probably all small business owners or just Americans in general. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of our ethos is how about you burn yourself out as quickly as possible? Yeah. Yeah. Efficiently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so you're here, you're selling your stuff. Um, how many, uh, how many pigs are you uh, working with now and uh, pigs and chickens and how many are you working with actively at this point? Um, so right now our, our laying flock is about 120 birds. Okay. Um, so we're, it's relatively small like compared to, you know, yeah. Bigger farms. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and our pigs, we, how many pigs do we have right now? Actually, I just counted them today. So we have, um, we do that periodically. That oh, makes sense. Make sure there's not one missing. Yeah, or an extra one. That'd be also weird. That too. Um, but uh, yeah, what are there? So it's, I think we have about 75 to 80 on the farm right now. Okay. Um, and we we breed um, year round. Um so there's just kind of a, a constant rotation. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, manageable, but where, where do you see the next steps going for you? Are you at a maintenance point or are you at the, like, I'm itching to do something different? I think we're at a maintenance point. It's, we're at a point where I think the, the number of animals that we have is appropriate for the land base that we have. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing with pigs is they they like to as we're talking about they're very curious and inquisitive they like to disturb the soil yeah because um, they want to see what's underneath it um, so that's one of the big challenges with pigs compared to a lot of other livestock you think about cows or goats or sheep they're and chickens realistically like they're they're just eating what's on the surface so they kind of 
graze down the grass in the paddock and they move on and the grass grows right back. Um, with pigs, the systems are more nuanced. Um, well, I shouldn't say more nuanced cause I don't want to offend any bee farmers. Um, cause there's a, <laughs> well, you're, you're doing really good so far. We've got your wife and we've got all other farmers. That's that's where we're at. Today. And then everybody in science too, <laughs> and all the all the climate scientists that are saving the world. So that's this is our running tally. We've got climate scientists that are saving the world. We've got your wife, and we've got all other farmers, livestock farmers, livestock farmers. Yeah, let's, we're, not, let's... we're not throwing the vegetable farmers in this. <laughs> Come on, give me a little bit of credit there. <laughs> um. Yeah. So the the yeah, the, it's the interesting thing with pigs though is they they um yeah they turn parts of the soil um and when they're in really good pasture it's less so and when you move them frequently it's even less less prevalent that they do that yeah um but it's one of the challenges with managing pigs in that you you really need to do really proactive um, thinking to protect your soil. Um, because they're not just walking on it and they're not just eating the grass. They're, they're working it at times. If you leave them in one place for too long. Yeah. Um, and we, we do have situations like with breeding stock. Um, like it's very hard to move like a sow with piglets. So we give them one spot and we just kind of have to sacrifice an area. And then we, we do some work with, with the tractor and reseeding it to certain cover crops, um, to kind of rehabilitate that, that area. But with the big herd of, of 60 or 70 pigs, they're moving every three days onto a fresh ground um, just to help minimize the impact that they have on the soil. And it's, it's interesting because we have seen even with that impact that they have um, just an amazing regrowth of really high quality grass in, in fields where there's basically goldenrod and brambles um, when we took over the land. Yeah. And I think it, it echoes where, you know, they've you know, reintroduced wolves into national parks and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, the animals have a big impact on the land when yeah. they're allowed to do the things they do and not are cooped up and, you know, having all the, you know, aggregated waste into giant pools and all the terrible things that occur in mass-scale farming. When they're allowed to do what they do, they do have a positive impact on the land around them. Yeah. Because they do... That's what they always did. And nature likes disturbance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Disturbance in any number of different ways is positive. Hell, it's positive for us sometimes. Sometimes we need to get kicked around a little bit so we can improve. Yeah. So um, I want to finish off. One, I've got a piece of meat in front of me. I'm going to eat this meat. And I'm going to tell you about it. Why don't you tell me what I'm trying right now? Um, so that is a piece of a pork chop. Um, with just a little salt and pepper and just put on the grill for a little bit. Mm. So we were talking about different cuts of meat. I'm talking with stuff in my mouth. But while I'm talking with stuff in my mouth, tell me about when it comes to taste for something like pork chops, what's the difference with a pig that's farmed on your land versus a commercial pig and what's the kind of flavor difference you should expect um so what i would say is you you can get a little bit of nuttiness from it and then you can actually taste um honestly just the fat has flavor Um, yeah absolutely i'm to be completely honest i'm terrible at describing the flavor of a pork chop um but it's yeah, I don't know. There's a little nuttiness, almost a little sweetness to it. Yeah, and the way I would describe it is, like this isn't like, you know, the pigs that are farmed purely on acorns. I've had those. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I can really taste the acorn in this. This is more just a bigger, wider flavor than you get with pork chops. If you've grown up eating pork chops from the grocery store, they taste like a whole bunch of nothing. Exactly. They taste like tough whiteness. They don't taste like actual meat. I almost wanted to say that, but then I didn't want to like put down grocery stores to oh, like, add gonna, that to the record. You I'm know? just going to go ahead and do that for you. Perfect. Thank you. Um, <laughs> like they, they don't taste like anything. And the nice thing you can say about this is it tastes like 
an animal that was raised on land. It tastes like it's worked a little bit. It tastes round. It tastes rich. It tastes deep. And this is a pork chop versus a pork shoulder, which would give you vastly even more flavor. So for this to be as flavorful as it is, being a pork chop, absolutely. This is the way to go. If you're going to eat pork chops, you need to eat them from a quality farm. So one, you'll know your animals were treated decently. And two, that they taste significantly better. This is almost the most staggering difference is with something that inherently has less flavor than the rest of the animal is like, it's a huge difference between the two. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing for me and probably the reason that I have a hard time describing some of it is that like, I don't eat, I don't eat pork from other places and I don't think I've had a pork shop that is not our own in, gosh, I'd say almost 15 years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The only ones I'd had before that were, you know, some of the higher end, you know, higher end pork chops that were, you know, from, you know, specific pigs, you know, as mm-hmm. a Mangalitsa pig or, you know, one of those like, oh, this is raised specifically for this and it's a double cut chop and it's cooked properly to medium or medium rare, you know, this, you know, treated like a proper steak. Those are always the way to go. But when it comes to, you know, something that's something that's more of a day to day than a special occasion piece mm-hmm. of meat. Yeah, this this is the way to go. If you want to chop, you want something like this. Um, what I wanted to end up with is you are in Henrietta or just on the border, which means you go to restaurants right in town. <laughs> what are so you're you're raising your meat, but when you're going out to places in town, what are the kind of places that you like to go to? Either things you don't cook or things that aren't kind of up your alley when you're making it at home. Yeah, I'd say the, I mean, to name specifics, um, I mean, we have been big fans of Sodom. Oh, so good, right? Yeah. I mean, it's something Henriette is so good with, you know, you can, you can cast your, cast your stones at all of the, you know, chain restaurants and everything else. But man, when it comes to places like that, it's, that is like all of our Korean restaurants are in Henrietta. Yeah. All and, of them. And it's, it's little hidden gems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that one's really good. Mm-hmm. Also really approachable. Nice family. We had them on a curate event in the past. They, they were just oh, really? so, so great to work with. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, uh, there was a while we were going really regularly and like got to know the owners and yeah, they're fantastic people. Yeah. Yeah. And just a wide range of places. Any others that are kind of go-tos? Um, it's been a little while since we've been there, but uh, Singdao House. I love that place. Which is also great, yeah. I mean, Szechuan food is so interesting. Like we were talking about it before with, you know, the the dry fried chicken hearts. That's where I had them. Oh, yeah. Was at, um, I think it was at Singdao was. Um, I was wondering because, I, yeah, I feel like that's, it fits the menu. Yeah. yeah. No, I and I, that was one of the places where, you know, eventually I'd love to you know, push for our curate meals, have an adventurous eating night where we go for, um, one of my go-to dishes there for a long time was the, um, I think it was tongue and tripe cold salad with Szechuan spices. They always call it like husband and wife dish or something like that. But it's like tongue and tripe that's in like a cold vinegar and chili oil with Szechuan peppercorns. So it's spicy and sour and salty and super meaty because they're like the most flavorful meats on a on a cow. Yeah, that sounds like that would be great. Really good. It, it was a very good dish, and it was so emblematic of the cuisine more than, you know, like Kung Pao chicken is a classic dish, but this feels like stuff that people eat that really love the cuisine. And those are the things yeah. I always love to find is like, what, what do the people eat that love this food? Absolutely. And that was one of those, the one my wife gets always like, you know, whole fish. Oh, so okay. you can, you know, you see a whole fish. So you're, you're picking around the head, you're eating around the bones, kind of treating the animal and like, yeah, yeah, that's a fish. That's what's one of me. You eat a fish. <laughs> it's not a filet. That's for sure. No. No, because I love the Henrietta area for that stuff. And there's there's so many different things in that area that you won't get anywhere else. Szechuan's another one. There's, we have one that's not in Henrietta. Which one is that? Uh, Szechuan Opera over on Park Ave. Oh, yeah. Okay. Really good. Okay, we haven't been there. 
Yeah, I was a little sad to see the um, the one at the mall close down, uh, Dragon Palace. I think I heard it closed down anyways. Mm. That was really good, too. But I, I love regional Chinese cuisine. I wish we had more variety of different um, different regional cuisines here in town. Because it's you know such a you know such a diverse range of sources. I, I wish we had more of it. Sure, yeah. But that's just me. I'm a nerd about all this stuff. <laughs> <sighs> all right. So let's put in the plugs again. So um, you can go to the website stonecropfarmny.com. You got it. Look at me. I remembered stuff. And then you can go to the farm Thursdays or Saturdays. Sundays. Sundays. And what are the hours? Um, so Thursdays, 4.30 to 6. And Sundays, 9 to 12. Awesome. So um, appreciate you coming over and continuing the conversation from Connections. Um, like I said, uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, it may still be on the website. If it is, worth listening to the conversation. I think it was really good. But I'm glad you came over. This was fascinating and whenever you have a long conversation you always find out something interesting that you would not have known before absolutely this was great thanks i really appreciate it so um if you want to find me i'm uh, at stromy on twitter and instagram food about town on facebook and also make sure you go to curatemeals.com to order for our next event our next one is coming up on september 29th with another great restaurant so appreciate you listening to the food about town podcast and Be good to yourself, be good to others, get vaccinated, and enjoy what is left of the remnants of summer here in Rochester.